you know, as always, as we open up the Word, as we engage with the Word, um, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and help us to receive His Word um, and to continually to mold us, mold our lives to be more like Jesus every day. Amen. All right, so I think most of you will agree with me when I say life is a journey of learning, right? No matter how old you are, there's always something to learn. You're bound to learn something. But how each of us learn best may be a bit different. And generally speaking, as most of you may have heard, I think there are generally four types of learning styles. Using the... All right, I need to enunciate this word very carefully. Using the, the FARC model. The, 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 the VARC model, right? I've got to enunciate the R a bit longer. So it's V-A-R-K, VARC, fear R-K. So V, V stands for visual. Now, this group of learners, they learn through visual displays of information. It may be diagrams, you know, charts, and pictures. And A stands for auditory. Um, this second type of learners, they learn through listening. Or some would even read the text out loud themselves so they can learn through hearing what they're saying, right? And R, R stands for reading and writing. And they learn through that, you know, reading and writing, writing down notes so they can remember. And the last type is K. K stands for kinesthetic learners. So this group of learners, they learn through actions, either through directly doing something themselves or watching someone demonstrate that. And, you know, you may know which style best suits you. And for me, um, I am a visual learner. So I love diagrams. I love pictures. I love imageries and analogies. So one time when I was interviewing for my first full-time job, um, I was asked this question, right? How do you explain risk management? Can you explain your understanding of risk management? So you know, since I love analogies, I, I use one of my passions in life to help explain it, and that's through a game of football. I'd keep you not actually use the game of football to do that. So I was like, okay, you know, the ultimate game of a the ultimate aim of a football game is to win the match. And you need to win the match by scoring more goals than your opponents. Now, you can only score goals if you attack. Now you can't possibly hope to win or to score goals without doing something, right? But when you attack, when you do something, naturally you will leave some gaps behind in your formation. So that, therefore, you need your defense to protect you, which essentially is the role of risk management. Now you need both attack and defense to score goals, to win the match, or in a, co a corporate context, to achieve your objectives. So as you can see, you know, imageries and analogies are so rich, and they're so powerful that help us to understand certain concepts and ideas. You know, in the Bible, there are a lot of imageries text full of imageries to help us understand the Christian life. You know, I'll give you some well-known examples. You know, the first one is, you know, we as followers, as you can see on the screen, you as we as followers are called to put on the armor of God in the spiritual battle that we're in. The second one is, Christ is divine, and we as followers are the branches, which means our source of life ultimately comes from God, and we need to continue to depend on God 
to produce good fruits. And the last one, you know, we are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which means our Christian living should make a positive impact in the society we live in. But we don't live like this so that we can gain anything for ourselves. You know, our saltiness and our light ultimately should point those who look at us back to Jesus. Um, if, you, you've been, if you've been with us for, for the last you know, two months, you know that we've, going, we've been going through the book of um, Hebrews. And today, we come to the second last chapter of the book of Hebrews, which is chapter 12. And, you know, if you are a visual learner like myself, you may be excited to hear that this chapter introduces another powerful imagery to describe the Christian life, and that is the imagery of a race. And, um, you know, for me, I like to sort of set the context again. So as a reminder in terms of the book of Hebrews, what we, when we think about the book of Hebrews, we need to understand that this, this book or letter was written to a specific group of people in a specific situation. Now, that group is the Christian or Jewish Christian community. So that means those Jewish people that have converted to, to being Christians or to declare Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And the situation is that this group of Christian or Jewish Christians community was tempted to go back to the old ways, to the old belief, to Judaism, because they were being persecuted by their own, own community for proclaiming Jesus as the Lord and Savior. So this book, this letter, was written to them, and as a warning, but as, as well as, a, as an encouragement for them to press on in their faith in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, um, let's turn to our Bible. Um, I want to focus on verses 1 to 3 only because I think there are so much already that we can draw out and really hone in on. So um, if we can get the, the Bible first on the screen, and let's read it together. So I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And so here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do not do this by keeping our eyes, sorry, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding his shame, now he's seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't be, become weary and give up. Amen. So there are a lot of gold nuggets from just these three verses, and we'll get into it. But if I was to pick out the main points behind this passage and pose it in the form of a question, it would be, if the purpose of a Christian life is to live by faith in order to be more like Jesus every day, and this journey, right, as per this passage, is said to be like a race, what do we need to know about this race and how do we run it? So I want, to keep, I want you to keep in mind this question. 
Um, so one of the more recent Netflix series that Arlene and I have enjoyed watching a lot recently is called Drive to Survive. Some of you may have watched it. Um, you know, it's a documentary about the sport, Formula One. Um, this series documents not only the actual races, but a lot of the behind-the-scenes material. Like, you know, how does the Formula business really work? How does it really run? It's, for me personally, it's, a, it's an eye-printer because I didn't know much about Formula One before. The only thing that I knew about it was you know, these cars, in my weird imagination, they look like hammer sharks, you know, with a horizontal head. Imagine having 20 cars or 20 hammer sharks just racing around the circuit. That's my weird imagination. But that's all I knew. That's really all I knew about Formula One. But I did a little bit of research, and through, through watching the, um, the documentary, I learned a bit more. So, for example, in, in this year, in Formula One, there are a total of 24 races to be raced all over the world. Um, in fact, there was one that um, we had in Melbourne just early this year, so early this month. And for those who are not familiar with, with Formula One, there are 10 teams that compete. Each team has two drivers. And so in making a total of 20 drivers competing throughout the year. Now, while the goal of each driver and each team, surely, you know, is to win, win the race, each of the 24 races. However, each team ultimately knows and understands that the season is long and you have to be in it for the long run and to last for all 24 races. You know, if you, if you are to have a chance to lift the major prize in the end. So in this regard, right, the F1 Formula, sorry, Formula 1 season is not a sprint. It's, a, it's actually a marathon. So likewise, in, in our faith, our, our race our of faith, which starts from the moment that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's not a race as well, it's a marathon. Now we can see this idea of a long journey in verse 1 when he says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Or in other translations of the Bible, it uses the word perseverance. You know, one of, the, um, one of our core beliefs in our faith is that humanity is sinful by nature as a result of the sin entering the world from the time of Adam and Eve. You know, the Bible speaks very clearly about this, um, using words such as sinful flesh and the body that is ruled by sin in the book of Romans. Another example is we have this earthly nature that produces sinful behaviors um, in the book of Colossians. You know, um, if you hear for the first time or hear at church for the first time, it may not be the best thing to hear. Um, yeah, but the truth is that we all have this natural inclination to sin. Given the choice between following God and doing God's will or our own, we will naturally want to do our own thing. So even when we declare, Jesus, I want to follow you every day from now on. This sinful nature that is inherent in us doesn't just disappear. It's still there. 
So this internal conflict between wanting to live more like Jesus, but yet we are constantly being pulled back towards sin because of our sinful nature. It's a real struggle. It's a real struggle for every single believer. And I think this is why the Christian walk is not easy. And as this verse says, it requires endurance. But if, you, if we look into the verse a little bit more closely, uh, we notice the author of Hebrews specifically uses the word run with endurance, not walk with endurance. You know, imagine when you enter into a race, either as an F1 driver, you know, um, with the example that I gave, or a runner of a marathon, you, you don't just enter into this race casually without an aim. You know, imagine you know, Max Verstappen, the F1 Red Bull driver, saying, you know what, I'm going to take it easy this time. I don't mind where it ends up. I really don't mind if Fernando Alonso from Aston Martin wins this race. That's okay. I'll take it easy. You don't hear that, right? You don't hear someone that enters into a race but not want to win or to, to, or to strive. Because if you are to take this race seriously, you know that you need to run it with intention, with purpose, and with great effort. One of the most fascinating things that I've learned from this series is that F1 drivers, they actually train a lot on their neck muscles. Um, because of the enormous G-forces, you know, um, the drivers need to be able to withstand any kind of pressure, uh, minor injuries even, or, and, on, and, and the G-forces, you know, when they enter and exit the corners. So if you notice, um, F1, F1 drivers, they actually have really robust necks. I want to ask you this question, right? What, are, what about your race of faith? Are you running this race or are you walking this race? Are you running it with intention, with discipline, and with great effort? When I say running with intention, um, I'm not asking, you know, what are you doing for church? I'm not making a statement on you need to do more. Now, we as a church, we don't really care about that as much as we care about this question, which is, how is your relationship with God? How are you building your relationship with God? Are you reading God's Word for strength and guidance? Are you talking to God and praying to God to let Him know the struggles? For sure, you know, your service... Your servanthood to church is important and it's a natural um, response of your journey with God. But that's it. It should be a natural response from your journey with God and that's the most important. And, you know, I would just like to say, you know, if, if you would like to know how to build your relationship with God more effectively, you know, our board, our pastoral staff and any of our leaders at church would love to have a chat with you you know, please don't be afraid to come to speak to us because our heart is to see you grow and run this race well. You know, I, I love how um, Dallas Willard, so he was a well-known American preacher who sadly passed away in 2013. 
I love how he puts it. He says, "Grace is not opposed to effort; it is opposed to earning." Now we can easily replace the word grace with God to say, "God is not opposed to effort; He is opposed to earning." You know, we we don't put effort into our race to earn God's grace, because our identity is assured. From the moment we repent, and that we declare Jesus as a Lord and Savior, but we put effort into our race because we know we desperately need Jesus to help us run this race. I think this is a great quote to summarize in the tension between effort and earning, and I hope you remember this as well. So now that we Have established, and we know that this journey, this race of faith, is long. It is difficult, and it requires endurance. How do we run it? So let's continue to read、um, verse one together.、Um, in this particular part of the verse, so it says, "Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up." This passage makes a, a very clear distinction on two things. First one is strip off every weight that slows us down, and second thing is strip off the sin that so easily trips us up. And you know, in another translation that might help you,、um, it uses the word sin that so easily entangles or sin that so easily ensnares. Now, what we can learn from this verse is that this race requires us to let go, to let go of certain things. You know, one one of the best things about preaching, and perhaps a, a very honest thing about preaching,、um, through meditating and praying over the passage, is that I can't really escape from reflecting on my own life and on, on my own race. In the context of what God is saying here, you know, you you have to be really real. You have to be real to yourself before you share God's word and with others. And this might sound a bit funny and silly, but、um, you know, one of the biggest weights in my life、um, in, re- in recent years,、um, perhaps around two to three years ago, is actually the、um, the video game FIFA. As I said, it might be a little bit funny when you hear this, but I hope you you stay with me here. I, m- I imagine most of you would have heard of it. It's a football video game.、Um, I started playing it casually in my mid twenties, and you know I love it. I play with friends online, randoms online. I'm a competitive person, so you know it's great. But as I went on, I started playing more and more. And around two to three years ago, I would say I've hit my worst. Now, there's this mode、um, in the game where you can enter to play a a mini tournament over the weekend, and this happens every single weekend. Now, if you want to finish the tournament, you will have to play all 30 games over the course of 72 hours the weekend. Each game takes around 20 minutes on average, and thir- and there are 30 games, right? So two simple maths: 20 minutes times 30 games equals 600 hours. 
which is a total of 10 hours over 72 hours. So I was dating Arlene at the time. <laughs> and usually we hang out on, on Saturdays. You know, I would try to fit in those 10 hours to work around it, you know, to work around my time with Eileen on Saturdays, but also, you know, to work around church on Sundays. And I would wake up really, really early. When I say really early, I mean like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. And mind you, I don't have a kid, so why would I wake up that early? To play a game. And I would sleep really late until like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. To make sure I actually complete all my 30 games. You know, not only was I very tired constantly, but this game, right, has also affected my emotional well-being. And I'll find myself, <laughs> fire up, I'll find myself swearing my head off at pretty much everything. You know, like, the internet is bloody slow. <laughs> For some reason, my players just stop moving in the game. What the heck is going on? And get this right, this is the golden one. I was actually swearing at the TV screen because the opponent that just scored wouldn't skip their bloody celebration. <laughs> if you're a gamer, you probably know what I mean. Just skip the celebration, man. Come on. You get like, I mean, it sounds really silly. It sounds, and I have a lot of it as well right now. But at the time, you know, it was real for me. Now, I would pretend that I'm okay at work and at church. And I tried to hide this from Eileen, but of course it didn't work because uh, she picked it up straight away. You know, but we, we've had some serious fights over it. I've tried to avoid using this word for a long, long time. But do you know what this, this is called? It's called addiction. And that was a big weight in my life. Now, video gaming is not bad. When used appropriately, it is an enjoyment, just like a lot of things in life. But for me, what should have been an enjoyment was actually causing me a lot of stress and was destroying a lot of my relationships with those around me. You know, my mind was filled and consumed with the thought of this game all the time that I've had little to next to none, no time to even think and spend with God. You know, today, I still play the game, but I've stopped playing this particular mode two, three years ago. You know, I had to strip off this weight from my life. I still constantly remind myself to not allow this game to be a weight in my life. You know, friends, a weight is not necessarily a sin. And I think that's why the author of Hebrews made this distinction here. And I'm the first one here to give you an example of a weight in my life. I don't want to list out some of the possible things in life that can be your weights in your life because I think it could be anything. But I pray that the Holy Spirit will help you, help to reveal in your life, just like he did to me, what are some of these weights in your life that you need to strip off as well? You know, just like how a marathon runner needs to strip off as much weight as possible for the runner to run well, 
we too need to strip off every weight that slows us down in this race of faith. So what is, what is holding you back? Now this part of the verse also talks about a second word. Um, it's the word sin. It says, the sin that so easily trips us up. You know, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure why the author uses the singular form of sin as opposed to the plural form of sins, because as we know, there are a lot of sins in this world. But, I, but to me, I think the singular form or, or, or the plural form can be narrowed down to the same origin, and that is the sin of disbelief that Jesus is enough to satisfy you. The sin of disbelief that Jesus is enough to satisfy you. King David, a very prominent figure in the Jewish history. Now you can find his story in the latter parts of the book of 1 Samuel and throughout the book of 2 Samuel as well in the Old Testament. And you may have heard about you know, the famous story of David and Goliath and how a scrawny little David was able to defeat the giant Goliath using a slingshot. Now, David was anointed by God to lead the Israelites as king after the first king of Israel, who was um, King Saul. Now, king David was described to be a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. But as glorious as King David's story is in many, many respects, his story is also a sober reminder to all of us about the entangling, the ensnaring nature of sin. You know, one night in Jerusalem, King David was walking on the rooftop of his palace and he spotted a beautiful woman bathing herself. Her name is Bathsheba. She was the wife of one of King David's mighty men in the army. His name is Uriah. You know, despite being married to Uriah, King David couldn't resist and gave in to his lust. You know, I won't go through the whole story end to end, but I want to bring out this point to demonstrate this point. You know, what was initially a sin of lust from King David led to the sin of adultery when he slept with Bathsheba. And because of that, Bathsheba fell pregnant. And in the attempt to cover this up, King David purposely sent her husband, Uriah, onto the battlefield with very little support so that he could be killed by the enemy on the battlefield. And he did. Uriah died in the battlefield. So in the attempt, in an attempt to cover the pregnancy, King David committed the sin of murder. We can see, you know, because of King David's disbelief in, you know, in Jesus as enough to satisfy us, the, the sin of lust led to the sin of adultery and ultimately led to the sin of murder. Now, when we hear this story, it's so easy for us to say, my goodness, can't believe he did that. 
I would never do that. But isn't sin entangling like that? What you thought was a simple and harmless thought because it's only in my mind. Or a harmless white lie because no one is hurt. Then, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, the, the craftiness of the devil and our own inherent sinful nature means that even if it was unintended from the beginning, a small sin can result in other areas of sins, just like the case of King David. You know, by the grace of God, King David repented, and God has forgiven him. But there were consequences of his actions and his sins that even led what even was evident in his next generation. Now, I think that is why the author of Hebrews is saying we need to strip off the sin because if it is allowed to have a foothold in our lives, it can entangle, it can ensnare, it can, strip, it can trip us up in ways that we never had the intention from the beginning. And of course, it is, easy said, it is easier said than done because of our sinful nature. And I'm sure you know, we will struggle with this for the remainder of our lives and our race of faith. But, but the author here didn't just stop here and leave us in this pit of despair. But the author offered an encouragement. You know, and that encouragement, which leads me to my last point, is that this race has been done before. Um, you know, I started this sermon a little bit, you know, out of order. Um, I haven't gone through the latter half of first one first, but in this last point, um, I would like to focus back on the first half of first one and the remainder of verses two and three. So the beginning of verse one says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, you know, we know by virtue of the word therefore, the author is connecting what has been said before to what he's about to say here in chapter 12. And if you remember, um, you know, we actually went through chapter 11 in our prayer and fasting week at the beginning of the year um, in January. But without going into too much details, um, the author has listed a number of individuals in... Um, in chapter 11 from the Old Testament. They include Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and Moses, just to name a few, to show and to remind us that these individuals have also run their race. Now, I'm not sure um, whether the imagery, right, the imagery of the crowd of witnesses means these Old Testament people are actually looking down from heaven on us right now. You know, a preacher, a preacher said this, and I, I found this really fascinating um, and interesting and funny. He said, how can heaven be heaven if Noah, Abraham, and Moses are actually looking down to us right now and witnessing how we actually do church? Surely they will be laughing at us. But irrespective, um, you know, this reference to this huge crowd of witnesses is meant to spur us on on our own race of faith. And the author is saying, 
remember your encouragers. This race of faith has been run successfully before. But this encouragement to me also points us to um, a deeper truth about God that I would like to share. You know, the God of yesterday that has brought them faithfully in their race is the same God that will bring us faithfully in our own race. Let me repeat that again. The God of yesterday that has brought them faithfully in their race is the same God that will bring us faithfully in our own race. While this cloud of weaknesses are indeed an encouragement to us, but our greatest encouragement of all actually comes next in the verse. Um, you know, in verses 2 and 3, it says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. In, in, in the New King James Version, Jesus is described in this verse as the author and finisher of our faith. You know, by, by author of faith, and it means Jesus is and has always been the object of faith. Even back in the Old Testament times, you know, in the Old Testament times, the animal sacrifices that, um, that were made in tabernacles and temples, they were never intended to be perfect. And how can a sinful man, which is the high priest in the Old Testament, who made these sacrifices be good enough to redeem us from our sins? No, they could not. You know, by, by finisher or by perfecter of faith, it means that Jesus has completed God's mission by his sacrificial death. He died to be the perfect sacrifice, right? So the object of faith that from time immoral, from the beginning, and even including us now, right now, the object of faith is now here, and that is Jesus. Now we are taught to set our eyes on Jesus in this race, as we've just read. But when I read verse 2 again, um, it always touches me. You know, do you know what the joy in the joy awaiting him in verse 2 means? I mean, let me read out the verse again. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. Do you know what the joy he is referred to? That joy is you. Jesus did not regard the cross itself as a joy at all. And in fact, I don't think there's any other ways to describe the cross, to describe the experience on the cross, other than the words horror and shame. And a crucifixion on the cross was, you know, in Roman Empire, one of the most, if not the most, 
humiliating, humiliating way to die. It was designed specifically to be as shameful as possible. Before Jesus was crucified, right, in the Bible, we know that Jesus went up to a place called Gethsemane, and it was said that he fell on his face, and he prayed to God, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as I will, but as you will. So not as I will, but as you will. In uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. As horrific and shameful as Jesus must have felt, he submitted to the will of his Father, our Father in heaven, and was crucified on the cross. Jesus finished his race on the cross. Jesus was the greatest and the most perfect example of what it means to run this race of faith. He completed God's mission for for the joy that comes after the crucifixion. And that is you. And that is me. And that is us. The eternity that we now have the opportunity to spend with God in heaven forever. So be encouraged, friends. In your race of faith, Jesus has run and finished this race. But what's amazing is he understands because he has run his own race of faith and he knows what you're going through and the challenges that come from this race of faith. I want to finish with this. You know, in the 1986 Olympic Games in Mexico City, a Tanzanian marathon runner, his name was John Stephen Akwari. I should say his name is, I think he's still alive. He was competing in a 42-kilometer marathon at around the 19-kilometer mark, and he collided with another runner. He fell. It was said he had severe cutting and also dislocated his knee. He had to be heavily bandaged um, because of his injuries. You know, as the race was quite grueling, as you could imagine, 42 kilometers, a number of the competitors that were there from the beginning out of, I think 79 were there, 79 of them were there from the beginning. A number of them actually pulled out and um, could not finish. But Akwari insisted, and he persisted. The winner of the race ran a time of around two hours and 20 minutes. And, um, you know, not long, not long after, all the other runners had finished as well. The medal ceremony had finished, and the stadium was about half empty at the time. The sun had already set as well. But uh, around an hour later, Akwari emerged, limping and running, more limping, into the stadium because of his injuries. He was the last man to cross the finish line. More than an hour later, after the winner had finished the race. And when he was asked, why do you keep running? Why don't you just retire from the race? And you had a dislocated knee. It's okay to retire from the race. No, Akwari said, my country 
did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. You know, the race of faith is not about how well you start it, but it's about how well you finish it. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit and through us looking, setting our eyes on Jesus, that Jesus will not only help us run the race well, but also finish it well. Now, for those who may not know and perhaps want to learn more about this race of faith, um, I invite you to speak to one of our leaders at church. Um, You know, we are more than happy to help and have a chat. And I pray that at the end of our race on earth, we can also say these words from Apostle Paul in chapter 2, not chapter 2, 2 Timothy, where he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Amen. Let's pray.